super spreader Mo Amir says. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just wanted to have a good time, man. I didn't know I was going to get corona. I think it's a hoax. This is Van Collar. We're at the West Coast. My name is Moamir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by a prominent and award-winning Vancouver reporter by the way of Toronto. She's worked for publications including The Vancouver Sun, Metro Vancouver, The Georgia Strait, The Seattle Stranger, The Source, and Double XL. Her work focuses on substance use, mental health, drug policy, and broadly, other health issues including, of course, COVID-19. In 2012, she won the Jack Webster Award for Excellence in Multimedia Journalism for her work The Gastown Project, a multimedia exploration of the Gastown area from its inception as Vancouver's first neighborhood to its current place as a melting pot for the wealthy and poor, young and old. She is a journalist for Canada's national newspaper The Globe and Mail, she is Andrea Wu. Andrea, how are you? Oh my God, that was like the, the most amazing intro. <laughs> you, you should be my wingman. Like we should go out together. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, I will absolutely hype you up. I mean, the bars are closed right now, but well, wherever you need open, hype, let me we're know. Going out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Give me thirty seconds of your time. Hold on, let me introduce you to my friend. <laughs> Uh, instead of me telling you my name, I have a guy. <laughs> you can just listen to him for 30 seconds. Uh, I'm very well. How are you? I'm so good. It's so nice to see you in person. I know. We've been meaning to do this for a long time. I'm super glad that uh, we're finally doing it. And you know what? You didn't disappoint from the jump. You join exclusive company by bringing me a drink yes. for our podcast. Yes, I know how to buy friends. There's only two people who've done this in the past. Jesse Miller from Mediated Reality. Yeah. And Tamara Taggart. Nice. What did Tamara bring you? I think she brought me a kombucha. She's awesome. She, she knows me a little better. Yeah. So she's like, oh, this guy's into kombucha. We'll get him a little something. But a beer is good, too. Wait, wait, wait. wait. So this is a, a lesser drink than what Tamara brought you. That's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, we're talking about kombucha. I think we're done. <laughs> <laughs> You're making me choose between beer and kombucha, and I will pick kombucha every time. So I brought, I, I've actually never had kombucha. I brought you a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. I think that might be my favorite beer. Oh, it's pretty good. Yeah. I'm a fan. <laughs> no kombucha. You also had the shortest commute of any guest that yes, I've ever had. It took on the me eight seconds to get here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate the, the long trek for you to be here, but mostly I'm appreciative of your time. You do incredible work. And as I said, it's been many months that I've been hoping to have you on the podcast. We're going to really focus in on the opioids crisis. But before we do, one thing that really upsets me is when some people conflate the opioids crisis, addiction, homelessness, and even mental health as if those are interchangeable concepts, although they are very separate, albeit related issues. One thing I've seen, and I've seen this from people who are speaking in the media, I've even seen this from certain politicians, is that they'll say something like, you know, first they're going to make an observation of homelessness on an encampment or something that's bothering residents. And then they'll state the fact of opioids deaths. 
And then they'll like illogically jump to, we need to fund more treatment beds to combat addiction. And they'll do this all in the same breath without even recognizing that they're talking about several different issues. And actually what they're saying lacks any logical sense. Can you separate out these ideas for me? Homelessness, addiction, opioids crisis. Is there a framework in which you view these issues? Yeah, no, I I think that's a a really great point that you bring up. And it's a really great way to start the conversation on this because you're right. Like people sort of use the terms interchangeably. You know, we have to fix the issue of homelessness in the city. We have to, you know, we have an opioid crisis. We have an overdose crisis, addiction, mental illness. And it's just sort of like a like they're all interchangeable terms when people are talking about some of the social disorder that we see outside. Um, But it's important that we understand and use the right language when talking about what we're seeing, not only so we can accurately talk about it and talk about it with precision, but so we can identify the right interventions for (laughs) the issues that we're so concerned about. So when we talk about the overdose crisis, for example, which is in and of itself already an imperfect term because it's not that people are doing more drugs than usual or overdosing more than before. It's an issue of an extremely toxic drug supply. Hmm. Like the the it's problem. a poisoning issue. Yes. Uh, Karen Ward, uh, drug policy advisor for the city of Vancouver, a friend of mine, um, she was one of the first people to raise the term with me, uh, like overdose crisis, um, opioids crisis. You know, it's not about opioids. I mean, opioids are perfectly safe when mm. used in a medical setting, when used appropriately. Um, and it's not exactly an overdose crisis. I still use that because it's... It's uh, the most easily digestible for people, but I make sure to quickly add that it's an overdose crisis due to an extremely toxic drug supply. Mm. But anyway, so when when we talk about that, I mean, it's uh, the fact that over the last eight years, uh, fentanyl has almost entirely supplanted our local supply of down. So uh, illicit opioids like heroin and whatever else. Downs. Down. Okay. Down is just like the colloquial term for heroin and, and okay. like methadone and, and people don't call opioids methadone in general. Down. Yeah, opioids. Okay. Um, street opioids. Is, okay. Um, so it's it's not a problem of addiction. We don't have more people who are addicted than we did before. Um, and so when we're talking about how to fix it, how to address it, saying more beds or more investments in treatment is not going to address the problem of an extremely toxic drug supply. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is obviously not to say that we don't need more investments in uh, treatments. We clearly do. We need massive investments in addiction treatment. But that's not what's going to immediately address the overdose crisis. And we'll get into it a little later in terms of how homelessness intersects with this. Because again, that's another issue, especially these days, that starts to come up and kind of gets conflated with all these other issues when it should be looked at separately. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Before we get to that, let's rewind back to New Year's Day 2020. 
before we had any inkling that the whole world was going to change. When it comes to the opioids crisis, and I'm just looking at the numbers here, drug deaths were down 36% in 2019. The averages seem to be down in January and February 2020 as well. I spoke to Dr. Mark Tyndall in early March, and he was still very vigilant that even though the trend was in the right direction, there was a lot of work to be done and it wasn't happening fast enough. When we started this year, what was your sense about the opioids crisis? So... Like, were you optimistic? No. No, <laughs> no despite I, the numbers, despite where the numbers were headed. No, not at all. Uh, so for for context, uh, 2017, 2018, we had roughly 1,500 overdose deaths uh, in each of those years. Um, it's important to note that before um, illicit fentanyl arrived in BC and did what it did to our drug supply, we had an average of just over 200 overdose deaths a year hmm. for the entire province. Yeah. To go from 200 to 1,500 for a couple of years and then to go from that to 900 deaths is no indication of optimism for me like that for for anyone like that's that's fucking awful like that's 900 something people dead in a year from entirely preventable deaths um sure but so if we're talking about the decline one of the things that pisses me off a lot is when you hear People say, like, oh, we have reason for cautious optimism. It's not optimism. 900 people died. Like, how many more people have to die until, like, we reach good news? I don't know. It's just the whole thing is just frustrating to me. Mm -hmm. um, but so the, the relative drop from around 1,500 people dead to 900-something people dead, that uh, if you talk to people who study these things like Patricia Daly from Vancouver Coastal Health, uh, they will say that it is an indication of all of the harm reduction measures that we've put into place finally producing some effects. So uh, you had mentioned before, like the naloxone kits uh, launched in 2012. Uh, the last update, there were at least 50,000 overdoses uh, reported. So when you get the kit, you have a form. If you use it and you reverse an overdose, they're hoping that you'll fill up this form and send it to the BCCDC so they can keep a, a record. Uh, so they apparently got at least 50,000 of those. Wow. So like to, to put that into context, that means that, you know, we, we gave these kits out everywhere and people in the community 50 at least 50,000 people in the community saved a life yeah uh and like to walk through the downtown east side like damn near everyone has one of these kits like hanging off of a backpack hanging off of a purse like in their back pocket like it's fucking insane to walk down the street and see how this crisis has transformed ordinary people into first responders hmm. and and like the people who who reverse overdoses with these naloxone kits 
like I have to think that that's just a a small fraction, the fifty thousand that will take the time to fill out this form. That was going to be my next question. Yeah. yeah, because how many people are actually doing yeah, that? Yeah, because you see overdoses in this neighborhood all the time. Yeah, and like no one's going to fill out a fucking form. Like, I I just saved life. Are you okay, buddy? Like, is there anything I can do for you? And then they just go about their day and like keep working. And it's it's like we should not be okay with that. Like. Uh, Sorry, I could go on. No, no, you should go on. I guess I guess what I'm hearing from you is we started the year. Obviously, we didn't know a pandemic was going to happen. But you were still not seeing any silver linings in terms of the numbers or anything like that. So the 900-something deaths, Patricia Daly and others have said interventions like the widespread distribution of naloxone and... Um, ramping up access to methadone and suboxone and uh, rapid expansion of overdose consumption sites, overdose consumption, overdose uh, prevention sites uh, are to be credited for uh, saving, fuck, what was the, the stat? I think they said without these interventions, overdose deaths are estimated to be 2.5 times higher. Wow. Yeah, so that, that uh, wow. Dr. Patricia Daly had said that. Yeah. Um, and so it's incredibly frustrating when people say like, oh, Vancouver, you're doing all this stuff. Like, why are people still dying? And it's like, because it would have been even more astronomical without these interventions. Right. When we look at the opioids crisis, as you sort of mentioned, opioids, heroin, these are not new things. And I know this is going to sound like somewhat of a basic question, but I think it's also one that I believe the general public has not explored enough when we think about this. What caused the opioids crisis? So I wouldn't call it an opioid crisis. Opioids poisoning crisis? Um, it's a contaminated drug supply crisis. Okay. The BC Coroner Service um which I thought was interesting and I appreciated. They, uh, a while back, changed their overdose reports to call them illicit drug toxicity deaths, which is accurate. Um, you know, it's not It's not that people are doing more drugs or suddenly taking more drugs. It's <laughs> the issue of the drug supply. Um, what caused it? Uh, so, I mean, we've... We've always had a problem of addiction in Vancouver. Mm. I mean, we've the downtown east side has been there for decades. Um, but again, before illicit fentanyl arrived, we had in the 2000s just over 200 overdose deaths a year. Um, in 2012, uh, illicit fentanyl in quote unquote down, so heroin, et cetera. Um, became enough of an issue that the BC Coroner Service first started checking for it post-mortem. Hmm. They did not in 2011. Uh, in 2012, it was less than 5% uh, of illicit drug overdose deaths uh, were found to have illicit fentanyl uh, in their system. Hmm. And then that grew from less than 5% to, oh, I don't even remember what the last count was, like, 80-something, 90-something percent yeah. of illicit drug overdose deaths. In how long? In what period? 
Uh, from 2012, less than 5% till now, where it's 80-something, okay. yeah. close to 90%. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's like when you were younger and like your parents would say, like, if you do drugs one time, you might die. And like the biggest fear that we had doing drugs when we were idiot kids is like, there are no drugs in this. Whereas like now, like, it's actually like really troubling, scary shit. So what was causing this fentanyl to infiltrate the supply? Uh, oh, fuck. How much time do you have? <laughs> I mean, give me, give me a two-minute Cole's Notes version because there's more that I want to ask you about. Yeah, no, like I, like some people would start the story at Prohibition. Sure. Uh, because... It, transporting heroin everywhere is hard like mm-hmm. to to ship bricks of key like kilos of heroin across state lines is very dangerous very risky fentanyl extremely potent mm. uh, also an opioid like heroin but i can send it to you in like one of those little what are they called like the the salt packages that you get with like leather goods to like Right, the des- desiccates or yeah, whatever? Like, yeah, they can just, like, put a little bit of fentanyl in there. Uh. Like, you can get a shit ton of fentanyl through, like, little... We... I'm trying to think of how much I can say about this. We had an investigation years ago where we talked to a uh, fentanyl supplier in China, and he guaranteed shipment to anywhere in the world. Um, and... She, we said, what if it was intercepted? Mm-hmm. And he's like, mm, send you more. Doesn't matter. Like, guaranteed shipment. Wow. Because it's so easy. It's just the smallest packages, you can't check every fucking letter, like every little, you know, iPhone package that comes through. So it's, it, Iron Law of Prohibition says that when you ban a substance, the substance will become more dangerous and more concentrated. So we saw that with alcohol yeah, prohibition. Yeah, people are making moonshine in their yeah, bathtubs. So, or... like, so people are not like illegally making you like a sweet rosé. Like they're making you moonshine yeah. because you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck. And you might go blind after Exactly. You drink it. Yeah. So like right now we don't have like a lovely opium tea. It's like it's fentanyl being blasted all over the world because it's super easy. Like there are no consequences. It's like you can't catch anyone. But when we look at the time period, is fentanyl new? Like, is it a new no, not opioid? At all. Okay, so then why suddenly the proliferation of fentanyl? Why didn't this happen ten years ago or twenty years ago? Fent- fentanyl is—I almost feel bad for fentanyl. It, it's <laughs> fentanyl is a perfectly safe opioid when used appropriately in a professional medical setting. Sure. Animals, and that's its like, use, right? Yeah, like dogs get it for surgery. Like cancer patients get it in acute care. Yeah, fentanyl. Um, the same could be said for heroin for a while. Heroin is a trade name from Bayer. Like it was like morphine. It was another opioid mm-hmm. that was safe. These these drugs in and of themselves are safe when used appropriately and in proper settings. Uh, I can't tell you why illicit fentanyl entered the drug supply. Someone figured out it would produce a similar effect. Someone mm. figured out that they could make a shit ton of money from it. Uh, it, it 
started happening. It became news. It's it's a thing now, and yeah. like you can't reverse course on this. Is it in demand from the users as well? Like, are users seeking out fentanyl? Yes. Well, like, I I can't talk. Like, I can't break it down like a proportion. Yeah. Um, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just asking if there's that demand for it, right? Like, they yeah. prefer it over yes, heroin, which I guess is non-existent now. They're uh, very minimal. Um, there are absolutely people who seek out fentanyl now. Uh, tolerance has increased to the point that heroin is like heroin's obsolete almost now and they've been using fentanyl they haven't overdosed their tolerance has increased and so they keep seeking out fentanyl Hmm. um and so that's actually super interesting too because that has implications for how we address it so when you say that we're going to offer a safe supply and we we should offer pharmaceutical alternatives to what people are getting on the street like slow release oral morphine you know stuff that they hand out in hospitals like that's that's not enough now like are you serious about a safe supply because if you are then you're gonna have to offer diacetylmorphine which is the pharmaceutical name for heroin Mm -hmm. or you're gonna have to offer fentanyl and that's the thing with methadone right because methadone is an opioid but it doesn't actually produce the same effect or doesn't give the user the same effect right uh so i've never used methadone i can't i can't personally speak (laughs) to it uh but uh yeah so so it's an opioid it's an opioid placement therapy um i've heard a lot of concerns with it um some of the main ones are like it it doesn't produce the same type of high it makes people feel sick Hmm. uh it like hurts your teeth uh the biggest change um which uh garth mullins uh crackdown podcast they talked about quite a bit too is that we had a switch from methadone to a different formulation in bc years back Hmm. and it was supposed to be chemically the same but it wasn't and it led to hundreds thousands of people like relapsing like this doesn't have leg it's not lasting 24 hours like methadone mm. used to and sorry i could that's another tangent that I sure can... yeah <laughs> i mean I, I took us there let's rewind it back a little bit as well when we were corresponding over email you talked about waves of chaos and we'll get into the intersection of covid19 and the crisis a bit later but when you say waves of chaos can you walk me through that chronologically God, like, where do you even start? Uh, it's one of the things that I'm, one of several things that I'm super grateful for about living in BC is that um, health officials seem extremely concerned and transparent uh, with what's happening. Mm-hmm. So, you know, something there'll there'll be a, a surge in overdose deaths and the BC coroner service uh, will rush out their report because it's really important and we want you to know what's happening ASAP. Mm-hmm. And then we'll have the we'll have like BC emergency health services saying, Hey, FYI, everyone, uh, we've recorded the busiest month on record for responses to overdoses. Yeah. Um 
the rest of the country doesn't do that. Like you have to fight for basic information that should be available to everyone. Hmm. So in BC, very grateful doctors, health officials, etc., are uh, very forward with whatever information that they have. Um, so when I referenced waves of chaos, it's like fentanyl arriving in the local drug supply and way more people overdosing and dying than before wasn't even the worst part of it. It's like, was that the first part of it then? Yes. Uh, so yeah, we, we saw the number of deaths climbing and mm-hmm. it was being attributed to fentanyl and then everyone was like, what the fuck is fentanyl? And, and, and there were those stories. And then as this quote unquote emergency, um, reached into its second, third, fourth, fifth year. Um, like one example I can think of is uh, doctor friend, doc, addiction doctor friend uh, mentioning that we had heard that there was this weird drug called atizolam showing up in urine drug screens. Uh, and so, like, I look into that, and it's a benzodiazepine analog. So it's chemically similar to a benzodiazepine, like an Ativan or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not uh, used in Canada. That was showing up in the local supply of, quote-unquote, down. So, like, when you bought down what you would hope is heroin, but is mostly fentanyl and fillers and garbage. Right. Um, this benzodiazepine analog was showing up in it as well. And so when you mix opioids and benzodiazepines, um, I mean, like taking fentanyl is in and of itself already very risky. Mm-hmm. But when you mix it with a benzodiazepine, like you're out, like you're out. And so naloxone will, um, it might get your heart going, it might knock the opioids off those receptors, but you're not conscious. And so Hmm. in Vancouver, in emergency departments and in overdose prevention sites, we suddenly saw people who overdosed and were hit with Narcan, uh, like sitting there in waiting rooms and OPSs for like half a day. Whoa. Yeah. And it was... And so was this sort of the second wave? What time period are we talking about that this started to become a thing? So that story, I think they first told me, I believe it was last spring. Okay. But the benzodiazepines in the local supply of down, like that's still very much a thing. Yeah. And what's interesting and also super fucking scary is that after I did that story, I think last spring, um, we would hear from people at harm reduction agencies across the country. It's like, we're seeing similar overdoses, but we don't have drug checking. We don't have any of this in our province. Like, we can only guess. Yeah. Because they're seeing similar things that we were seeing. Yeah. But it's fucked up to, like, to have to read about it in a newspaper and be like, I think that's what we have, but we don't know. Because they don't have the capacities to test or 
or the political willpower to make this yeah. a thing. I guess when we're talking about this, one thing to keep in mind, what I'm getting for you is that the supply is constantly changing. Yeah. I assume that that makes it quite hard to tackle the issue as well, doesn't it? Well, I mean, what are we trying to tackle? Deaths, I suppose. That's not that hard. No, I mean, if if people are dying from a completely volatile drug supply, it, it's like it's what we talked about at, at the beginning of this, where you know people this this surge in overdose deaths is not being caused by addiction. It's not mm-hmm. being driven by addiction right now. It's being driven by the contaminated drug supply. Mm-hmm. And so if we actually cared about people dying, which I'm not sure that we do, then you would offer an alternative to the extremely toxic drug supply. Mm-hmm. Um, because as we talked about, this is separate from addiction. Like, Having more beds, offering more addiction treatment, which we need, we absolutely need, is not going to meaningfully address the fact that more than 170 people are dying every month in this province. Mm -hmm. What has the city of Vancouver or the provincial government or the federal government, what have they been doing to stop the deaths? Uh, so the federal government, uh, to their credit, they've they've removed some barriers to uh, importing pharmaceutical grade heroin, for example, which is not a you know politically friendly thing. There's politically no reason that they would have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there has been some movement there. The provincial government, um, Bonnie Henry has sort of been the face of this. She's talked about pandemics, pandemic prescribing and that we need to be offering these pharmaceutical alternatives, especially during COVID and people aren't supposed to be out and about and going to pharmacies all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's there's movement. And I think when... 6.5 people on average are dying every day. It's hard to recognize any sort of progress. Um, but there is that. The problem with safe supply right now is it's being left to doctors who, since the start of the overdose crisis, have been blamed for prescribing too many opioids and getting people addicted. Mm. And now they're supposed to be prescribing a safer supply to shit that's killing people. Right. And people are uncomfortable. Uh, and and that was the action in March, right? Minister Judy Darcy said that they were going to open up safe supply. I don't recognize months anymore okay. during the pandemic. <laughs> it was the start <laughs> of the I, pandemic. Yeah, I think it was around March. Yeah. Yeah. And she said that the minister said that they were going to open up safe supply for prescribers to prescribe. Yeah, they, they made a few addicts. changes in prescribing guidelines to allow for it. And when they're, And when we're talking about safe supply, what are we talking about? Because it's not methadone, right? Because even methadone can be seen as a safe supply, but it's not really what we're talking about. That's an excellent question because 
they included things like methadone and suboxone and safe supply, which okay. people sort of like raise their eyebrows at. Like it's not sure and whatever. Like yeah. it's, it's it's not a safer supply, but things like hydromorphone were included. Uh, but so the the issue now, um, like we sort of touched on earlier, is that people are addicted to extremely uh, potent substances and giving them morphine is not going to do anything. If you give people some uh, a couple of hydromorphone pills, maybe people will just sell them for some money to buy like what they really need to get rid of their withdrawal. So there is uh, some movement right now on that. I believe there will be news on that soon. Um, that they will be expanding some of the substances that are allowed under the uh, pandemic prescribing policy arena. Could government policy have stopped this early on? Have stopped the deaths early on? I mean, government policy could probably stop the deaths now. So you're saying it's just been inaction? why this crisis still exists? It's a super uncomfortable subject. And to government's credit, saying that they're removing barriers to prescription heroin, while it's completely evidence-based and backed by people who are significantly smarter than any of us, uh, it's still unpalatable. So, I mean, there's, there's a bit of movement, but... People are uncomfortable with the subject of drug use and addiction and injection drugs. And mm-hmm. I mean, like, policy platforms now, like election debates, it doesn't even fucking come up. It's the biggest crisis that our province has ever faced, I would argue. Mm-hmm. And it's nothing. Like, I looked at Aaron O'Toole's party platform. He had a whole section on defunding the CBC, and he didn't say a word about the overdose crisis. Yeah. Not a word! Yeah, well, you're talking about Aaron O'Toole. He's running a different type of campaign. Not even more beds! <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out, because you are, on one hand giving the government certain credit. Yes. Right? But then on the other hand, you're also saying that there there's a lack of political will. So are you saying that there's a lack of political will to go to the proper step of safe supply, to have the proper type of safe supply? Like, that's where I'm kind of getting confused. And maybe you can explain to me in terms of when we talk about safe supply, what do you think is the right prescription of safe supply? Because as we said, there's a lot of these substances that fall under that category. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's more of a provincial issue. And I think it's, I mean, it's, it's to people who have friends and loved ones dying every few days. It certainly feels like it's moving really fucking slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, like I said, I mean, th- there's there's some there's some progress uh, We're we're moving on safe supply. Um the issue now will be to sort of demedicalize it so you don't have to go to a doctor to prescribe. Um, so it's more of like a clinical-based model. 
and there there is some movement on that um you know whether it was speedy enough you know four years after a provincial health emergency was declared Dr. Henry pointed to difficulties in expanding prescription-grade heroin opioids programs. What are those difficulties? Uh, So, um, just for some context, because prescription heroin sounds insane to some people. Uh, So, we have... We had a few clinical trials in BC um, about using pharmaceutical grade heroin to treat uh, addiction on the streets. And so what that trial based out of Crosstown Clinic in Vancouver's downtown east side found was that for people who had not succeeded with conventional therapies like methadone or suboxone, I think it was like an average of 11 times each, that you could come to this place uh, and get witnessed injections of pharmaceutical-grade heroin two or three times a day. Um, and and that was found to really uh, reduce criminal activity, like people were no longer breaking into cars and places for money to feed their habit. People mm-hmm. weren't doing sex work anymore um, because... The drugs were pharmaceutical grade, like you weren't overdosing, um, you knew exactly what you were getting. Interviewed a bunch of people like right after their injections there and I didn't know what to expect, but it like they just got rid of their withdrawal symptoms. Hmm. So it was very much a, a treatment program. Um, a study that came from that uh, clinical trial had the cost of untreated an untreated heroin addiction in the city uh, to be $45,000 per person per year. So this hmm. estimate is from like a decade ago, so it would be higher now. Yeah. Uh, to be in this program, which is highly intensive, medicalized, requires pharmacy preparations of the drug. The biggest cost is having to import it from Switzerland because we we don't manufacture pharmaceutical-grade heroin anywhere on this continent. Hmm. Um, For a person in that program, it would be $26,000 a year. Okay. Uh, The $45,000 is like criminal justice costs, you know, breaking into stuff and healthcare costs. Uh, So there is some movement on manufacturing a local supply of pharmaceutical grade heroin now um former provincial health officer perry kendall and martin schechter from ubc they have started a company they want to they're planning to manufacture it locally they're hoping uh very preliminary estimates but they're hoping that they can provide this treatment to a person without the cost of importing and without pharmacy preparations because it'd be a slightly different uh, formulation for like $400, less than $400 per person. Wow. Um, yeah. on, on $400 per person? Sorry, that's that's per month. Per month, okay. Yeah. Wow. 
So less than 5,000. And so it sounds like it's a capacity issue in terms of being able to manufacture this prescription-grade heroin. Like, that's why it's been so tough to expand safe supply, because there's no, there is no safe supply in that sense. Yeah, I mean, is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, we, we have hydromorphone, and that's been a, a slow rollout. The, the tablets are different from the injectable yeah. formulation. And pharmaceutical-grade heroin, we've seen and have studies showing us that it's effective since the 2000s, but... It's heroin. It's scary. We couldn't mm-hmm. do it. The federal conservatives shut it down. They called it dangerous drugs. It became like a whole fucking thing that went to the Supreme Court. Um, but it, eventually, science prevailed. But it's still there. There's still, I think, like a hundred-ish people who have access to it in Canada, all in BC right now. To the prescription-grade heroin. Yeah. Is that the same thing that my safe supply is dispensing? No. So they're distri- uh, dispensing hydromorphone tablets. Okay. That is not prescription grade heroin. No, hydromorphone is um, it's it's a an opioid. It's often used in acute care surgery. Uh, opioid uh, somewhere in between morphine and heroin. Okay. Let's look at the impact of COVID-19. How do you explain to someone how the COVID-19 pandemic led to a rise in these toxic drug deaths? Yeah. Like, how do you just explain if someone goes, I don't understand the connection? Yeah. No, it was, it was, uh, it was scary to watch. I mean, it, it also exacerbated homelessness, too. Um, like, I remember in... March, late March, after everything was being shut down, and I was like walking around the downtown east side, and like sh- libraries closed, and mm-hmm. places that if you were homeless, you could hang out, they were all closed. Community centers, like the McDonald's, was all boarded up, the Ovaltine Cafe boarded up. You're not supposed to be standing together. And it's like, as a homeless person, like, where the fuck am I supposed to go right now? Like, right. do you just want me to, like, stand in this field by myself, like, yeah. physically distanced from everyone? Uh, but so people were worried about physical distancing. So in supervised consumption sites, in ev- any given week in Vancouver, we have about 6,000 visits to all Vancouver overdose prevention sites um and late march early april that dropped down to about 2000 why did people stop going uh part of it was operators of overdose prevention sites were unsure whether they could still operate normally everyone else had to physically distance there were Mm. some sites that removed every other booth so people could physically distance um, and some people were just worried about being out, so they decided to go home. And like the 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 COVID nineteen messaging, especially in March April, you know, stay away from other people, uh, stay home, is exactly counter to everything we have said about drug use safety never use alone always be with people like make sure you have Narcan come to a site Um, so yeah uh, visits to supervised consumption sites dropped 
significantly. Um, and then there was like a directive to Vancouver Coastal Health and other people. Patty Daly was really loud about this too. And it's like, I want it to be very clear that in the downtown east side, this is still our number one crisis. Mm-hmm. And so like physical distancing is not a thing in supervised consumption sites, make sure that people use them. But it took a really long time for people to start going back to those sites. Did the government take this into account? The province, at least. I mean, you just mentioned pa- Patty Daly, but when they're putting out this messaging, do you think the needs of communities like the downtown east side were taking into account, or the needs of drug users in general? Because obviously, drug users are not restricted to just the downtown east side. Not really. <laughs> do you think it was one of those things that it's just kind of easy to forget? Do people care? Well, that's what I'm asking you. I don't think people care. I mean, we've had 6,000 people die in the past few years. I don't think anyone cares. You're in this unique position because you're on the ground. You're talking with addicts. You're talking with people who are homeless. You're talking to experts as well. Is there a clear strategy to stop the deaths? I mean, we've talked about safe supply, and you've sort of touched on expanding safe supply, not just in terms of distribution, but in terms of the type of safe supply that's available. Are you talking about a safe supply of fentanyl itself? Is that what's going to stop the deaths? Like, what is the strategy? Safe supply is a very important piece of it, and probably the first piece of it, if your goal is to stop people stop people who use drugs from using toxic drugs that'll kill them. Mm -hmm. Um, There are other things. I mean, like decriminalization has been talked about a lot, but there's no movement on that. Bonnie Henry has been calling for that for a few years, but, um, you know, the province takes certain advice from her. But doesn't decriminalization just enable safe supply? Like, that's the idea? What do you mean? Decriminalization would help to open up new facilities, right? As opposed to facilities needing special permission to distribute prescription-grade heroin or anything like that. My, my understanding, and maybe I'm wrong, but I just thought decriminalization was sort of the gateway to expand safe supply programs. I mean, under safe supply, these would all be pharmaceutical grade. So anything that you prescribe under those programs would not be currently illegal substances. But where decriminalization is important, especially at a time when you have politicians from every level of government saying this is clearly a health issue, but mm-hmm. you know, but you say that we should still be criminalizing people who use drugs. So I don't know, like the the guy down the street who clearly has an active untreated addiction he could be thrown in jail for selling $5 worth of drugs. Like he, he should not be, it's illegal to be possessing right. anything. Um, and it fuels this cycle of criminal recidivism. Uh, and that doesn't benefit anyone. Like that's extremely expensive. This person is fucked, like, for the rest of their life if they're just in and out of jail. Uh, Are we serious when we say that we believe that this is a 
a health issue. So you don't necessarily need decriminalization to expand safe supply. Like decriminalization sounds more like like a criminal justice issue, which is related. But when looking at how to expand safe supply, you don't necessarily need full-on decriminalization. No, no, you can move on safe supply now. Okay. Uh, And you don't need decriminalization to do that. But decriminalization is still important. So again, to the... To, to the question that I originally asked, how would you outline a strategy? I mean, because you're talking to users, you're talking to experts. So what does the strategy look like in terms of stopping the drug deaths? I can't sit here and like advocate for things. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but you can cite people that you've talked to. But I mean, it, like if, if you want to stanch deaths from a toxic drug supply, then you need to rapidly expand a safer supply program, which is not happening so far. Mm-hmm. And then decriminalization is a separate but related component of that. The urgency is safe supply. Yes. Yeah. What is the intersection between the opioids crisis and housing? And by that, I mean, obviously, safe supply is one thing. But if you're homeless, safe supplies keeping you alive. But how important does it become to secure a shelter, to secure housing, and perhaps open up doors in the future for rehabilitation? Yeah, that's um, yeah. No, that's a that's a great point. I mean, it's a super complex relationship between homelessness and substance use. Um, we know that. People who are homeless are disproportionately higher uh, in their use of substances, um, but one does not necessarily cause the other. Um, I've talked to plenty of people who are homeless and use stimulants because they want to stay awake and they don't want to be robbed through the night and they feel that's the safest thing to do. Hmm. I mean, if if I was sleeping on a street and and experienced all that came with that, like I'd f- probably be using drugs too. Like, yeah. Um, but I'm sorry. What was the question? <laughs> Just how the crisis and homelessness intersect, or where they intersect. I would find it very difficult to navigate a path towards sobriety when you are sleeping in Oppenheimer Park or Strathcona Park. Yeah. What do you say to people who push back and say, well, some of these users want to be in those parks, in those encampments. Some of these users are not going to take safe supply. They're going to still want their drugs off the street. Because you hear that a lot. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who's who would rather pay money from for some unknown concoction on the street versus a safer supply of a drug of their choosing. Mm-hmm. So again, this is becoming a recurring theme. It is about opening up that supply and making it accessible. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I know it makes people bristle. It's super fucking uncomfortable. No, I'm not bristling. I'm... It's interesting to me because 
it seems so simple, and yet the issues are so complex. Because like people have like a visceral reaction to it. Like, you know, I don't want my tax dollars to be paying for this shit on the street that they see that's pissing them off. And I understand that completely. Uh, but you've made the economic argument in terms of how it can actually save money. Yes. You've made the argument that it will actually, in a lot of cases, deter people from street crime, yes. from sex work. Yes. You've made the argument, and I think probably the most important one, is that it keeps people alive. Yes. And dead people don't rehabilitate. Yes. So then, <laughs> so then if the solution is so simple... Why is this so complex? It's just a moral hang-up, really? I just don't like it. <laughs> that's that's the yeah. that's the reaction. That's why. Yes, it's it's a it's a visceral emotional reaction, I think, and and political leaders have to think of what all their constituents say, and and people. But that's bullshit to me. I think political leaders, part of their responsibility, not only to represent their constituents, but it's also to sell good ideas to their constituents. Yeah. Especially when we're talking about science-based ideas, right? <laughs> we're not talking about, you know, Some people where should the art installation it. go? It's yeah. Part of that, I think, falls on them. Is that they have to sell it to the public. And you just gave me, like I said, you gave me three reasons. So then why is this so complicated? You're still saying it's just political will and perhaps capacity to produce and, and expand safe supply? Have you seen any politicians cheerleading this? <laughs> not many. And like, this is not like an opinion that I pulled out of my ass. Like I, I get my opinions from very smart people who have devoted their lives to this and their careers to this. No, absolutely. I'm, yeah. I'm just trying to get that full explanation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Because it is baffling yeah. when you're providing me with a simple solution. You've explained why this makes sense. Yeah. And then I'm asking you, okay, well, what are the challenges to getting this done? And you're saying, ah, people don't want to. <laughs> you, you should have those people <laughs> and ask them. <laughs> We've seen... A lot of community groups like Safer Vancouver and Step Up emerge as apparent advocates for residents and businesses in the Vancouver area. Among other things, they're calling for an audit for the social services in the downtown east side. And this would include a lot of harm reduction services as well. Some people hear this and they go, audit, responsibility, that sounds pretty reasonable. And others say that it's unfair targeting. What's happening here? What's this push for an audit all about? Um, so I I can't I can't speak a lot on uh, safer Vancouver like groups like that specifically because I don't know a ton about them. I've I've never talked to anyone from these groups before. I think I've seen two names um, associated with the groups linked to some pretty callous comments like mm -hmm. you know we we should uh, like where do these people even come from we should put them on a naval ship or like in barracks Dallas Brody's comments on a different podcast or something yeah yeah um so like I'm 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 uncomfortable with comments like that um but I think it's important to recognize that 
concerns about neighborhood conditions are valid. Mm -hmm. When you're walking by someone with an obvious untreated addiction or is, you know, in the throes of psychosis or has been sleeping rough, like we absolutely should feel some sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think where I, I lose my personal connection with whoever I'm talking to is when they say, like, where the fuck did these people come from? Like, I don't want to see it. Um, but so in terms of a, an audit of downtown Eastside providers, I think what makes some people bristle is that it doesn't come across as a good faith proposal on how we can better conditions in this neighborhood. It's being presented as a tool to dismantle conditions that people find unsightly. Mm. So we saw this, for example, in Alberta with the United Conservative Party, and they've been very clear about their opposition to harm reduction, and they launched a review of the Lethbridge uh, Arches Supervised Consumption Site, the busiest consumption site in in Canada, in North America, Um, and they found some financial mismanagement, and they're defunding it, and it's closing, or it's closed already. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, like, if you, um, financial responsibility, a good thing. You know, yeah. if, but if you audit a hospital and and there's some weird shit happening, you don't shut down the hospital. Right. Um, so people who are critical of that said it was very clear what they were doing. This was a plan. They're also defunding a supervised injection, injection opioid agonist treatment program um, as of March. I mean, they've... they've so an audit sounds like coded language for the first step to defunding these services yes and there's there's also this i've seen a few comments about you know we spend all this money on these services why is the downtown east side still the way that it is i mean these programs were not launched to fix the downtown east side Mm. i mean like a, a program that supports women who are fleeing violence or some organization that will give you a bowl of food when you're hungry. Like, that's not fixing anything. Yeah. But they're invaluable. Yeah. And they employ a whole bunch of people in the neighborhood. And especially in these past few years, they're fucking saving lives, like, literally every day. Yeah. And so for people who are not from the neighborhood to say, like, we should audit them and probably, like, end this is offensive when you see what happens in these organizations. So how do these groups where membership is unknown, it's unclear whether this is a Facebook group or whether this is actually an organized group of people who have meetings and keep minutes, how does this group and groups like it, how do they get so amplified in the media? How come they aren't being vetted of like, wait, who are you guys? Like, we need to know a little more information before we give you a platform. I, I can't speak to the, <laughs> the, uh, the editorial decisions of other news organizations. Um, and have they been in the media like a ton? 
I've seen them in the evening news. I've heard them on the radio. I've seen politicians amplify them on Twitter. Like specific accounts and people? Yeah, like say for Vancouver getting RT'd by people in media and in politics. Sure. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, like I mentioned before, I think it's absolutely valid that we have concerns about what's happening and you know if i had a toddler who was wandering around i'd be fucking scared shitless if there were needles everywhere and mm-hmm. i didn't feel safe like i'd be unhappy too no one thinks that this is good like no one no one walks down the uniblock or the hundred block of hastings and like this is awesome we should replicate it everywhere like it's clearly a problem yeah what concerns me is the amplification of people who are very um, hostile uh, and and stigmatizing towards certain groups because I don't think that's reflective of the city in general. I think, I don't know, but I think it's a small but loud group. And I think it distracts from legitimate compassionate neighborhood concerns. Mm -hmm. So I would be very wary of of giving people who are sort of hateful and divisive uh, a platform. I think you're absolutely right in saying that it's a fair concern to say, hey, this encampment on the street outside my building is not safe for anyone. It's not sustainable. I've read two stories in the past few days from like my former building about like cleaning up shit. <laughs> I was like, hey, that's my hood. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that that's a fair concern. Some of it does seem to be, if not borderline, but maybe definitely poor bashing or dehumanizing. And I think once you get into that gratuitous territory of you know, constantly showing this, it, it creates this idea of dehumanizing someone. And when you dehumanize them, suddenly forcing someone into treatment against their rights, against the science, suddenly that becomes a lot more palatable. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's an agenda there. <laughs> the the forced treatment thing is interesting, too, because... And no one's saying forced treatment, but the implication... Some people are saying forced treatment. Some people might be, but I also think that this... And maybe I'm wrong, please correct me, but I feel like when people talk about treatment beds, treatment beds, treatment beds, and then you bring up, oh, well, you know, you can't force anyone into treatment, (laughs) and also it's ineffective, you almost get the sense that treatment beds is also code word for involuntary treatment. Um, I have some sympathy with people who say, you know, we should push treatment because, of course, we want everyone to be not addicted. No one wants to be addicted. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with that is that there is evidence on this. Like there have, there's been extensive research on this that when you force people into treatment, it's not effective mm-hmm. um, for a number of reasons that I can't rattle off now, but like among them, it also burns trust and a reluct- there's a reluctance there to return to healthcare afterwards when you're forced into treatment like if you're like handcuffed to a bed or like locked in a room or like under like a mental health hold you lose trust in the system and especially now um when we are living through 
a crisis of an extremely toxic drug supply that if you force someone into treatment and they are forced to abstain for several days and then they leave and presumably relapse because relapse is extremely common at the best of times, <laughs> uh, they no longer have a tolerance and your chance of overdosing and dying is actually significantly higher. And so for that reason, the BC Center on Substance Use revised their policies recently that we should not be forcing anyone into detox. Right. They've changed the definition of detox. like Because they think that they have that tolerance for the same type of drugs that they were taking, but since they've been detoxed for X amount of days, it hits them a lot harder. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, I, and I'm not trying to make light of any of this, but it's even that idea of like, how do you get fit? It's like, you have to commit to it. You can't have it forced upon you, <laughs> you know? And it's, it's the same idea. And I think a lot of people understand it that way in terms of, you know, if, you're, if you want to lose 20 pounds, you can't have it forced on you. You really, you yourself have to be committed because you're ultimately accountable for yourself. Yeah. And this is much more serious, much more intense, and people don't apply the same logic to it. Another thing about the, the more beds thing, which on the surface sounds like a great thing. Yes, of course we want more treatment beds. And I would say, yes, of course, we want more investments in addiction treatment. But when you say more beds, like, what does that actually mean? You know, you're not going to have someone who's been addicted to opioids or to street drugs for a couple decades or whatever coming in, sleeping in this bed and like eating nice sandwiches for like five days. And like, you Hmm. know, suddenly they come out like, oh, I'm all fixed. Thank you so much. Like we... Bethany Lindsay from CBC did a great story pretty recently, last couple of weeks, about how uh, a BC coroner service death review panel a couple of years ago, um, in uh, after uh, one of their reviews said that regulate provincial regulation of addiction treatment and um, like addiction treatment facilities should be regulated that should be a number one priority two years later like nothing has happened so we hear plenty of stories about families who are fortunate enough to have money to spend on uh, recovery centers and whatever Mm -hmm. spend tens like hundreds something thousand dollars taking out second mortgages yeah basically yeah yeah and like kids going in there and you know being told to do 12 step type things right. you know, uh and and then they overdose and die like we need evidence based mm. treatment facilities there's no regulation right now so when you're saying that we're going to have you know 100 more beds 300 more beds like what does that actually mean yeah we need more treatment, but, yeah. but what is your... What does that even look like? Yeah. I'm going to be cynical about these community groups, so I want you to be straight with me. <gasps> is this just about <laughs> gentrifying the downtown east side? Because it strikes me as very weird when I see people connected to real estate amplifying these groups or connected to these groups. And the cynic in me looks at the buildings in the downtown east side that were probably purchased for a few million dollars each, but in a real estate investor's eyes, that land could be worth 10 times that amount. 
If only they could displace the homeless population into treatment beds, they could make a lot of money in that area. Is that tinfoil hat Damn. stuff? Go off, Mo. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I want your opinion. Is that tinfoil hat stuff? Or do you think there is certain pressure from certain interests, which I've just outlined? I can't speak to specific interests. Like I don't, I don't know these groups. Um, I mean, the it's it sort of reminds me of like when when people accuse the media of doing this and that. It's like we are not coordinated. Like we're not a smart bunch. Like we're just trying to get through the fucking day. Like trust me, there's no conspiracy here. Uh, but like the media is often blamed for things. So like I don't know. Like I can't. So you're saying it is tinfoil hat stuff. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know these specific groups. Like I have no idea what their intentions are, but I know that there's a very emotional reaction to drug use and visible injection drug use, and your home, you know, your safety area being uh, like impeded on. Like I, I understand that discomfort. That I understand as well. I don't know. I, I don't know if they have a, a bigger plan. <laughs> I'm just saying the idea of displacing that population, the homeless population, into quote unquote treatment beds somewhere else. Yeah. There is a lot of money to be made in a venture like that. And it has its money not in the process of public health. It's, it's money in real estate is what I'm trying to point out. Have you have you linked a developer to these comments? Not to those comments. Can we talk after this? <laughs> but I but no, I mean there's a prominent developer in Vancouver who is sort of at the forefront of posting photos of homeless people and homeless encampments. Again, I think it's kind of if it's not full poor bashing, it's borderline poor bashing, and it makes me wonder why and why it's him. Get him on your show, dude. I don't want to talk to developers. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I don't know. I, I really don't know. I, I can't speak to someone else's intentions, but I'd love to. I'd love to hear more about that if that's a thing. I, I would like to talk to Gillespie. That's the only one that. I, that's the only guy that I would talk to. And I'm not talking about him in this instance. But a lot of people look at it that way. Who are you talking about? Well, I'll tell you. It's, after. Ju it's just me and you. <laughs> 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 I want to end it on this note. I've heard people say this as well, and I want your reaction to this. Is the worry that if Vancouver is a city that provides safe supply and maybe even housing with wraparound services to a homeless population, to the addict community, for the lack of a better term, that more homeless people more drug addicts will migrate here. Because we keep hearing this thing about, oh, our homeless population, this isn't even from Vancouver. They're being bussed in from other jurisdictions. And so if we provide them great services to help them and keep them alive, well, then all these other jurisdictions are going to keep doing that. Is that a worry? Is that a fair worry? Probably depends on your politics and your point of view. I mean, we've seen plenty of jurisdictions say that we don't want this type of shit in here, uh, including in BC. 
And they've made it pretty much illegal to be homeless in the city. Um, Vancouver has long chosen to be progressive. It's tried to um, prioritize human dignity um, in the face of social consequences there might be, I think. Um, and I think it just, it falls to what your personal beliefs are. There are people who think that what's happening in Vancouver is fucking insane mm. and like a nightmare. And there are other people who are proud of the stance that people in Vancouver are taking, albeit like not, you know, perfectly happy with everything. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's a, a, a right answer, you know. Ultimately, doesn't it mean that the feds have to take more of a role? Because migration of people can really only happen within borders, right? Free-flowing migration of people. So it means that the feds have to take a role in terms of looking at this not just as a Vancouver problem, but as a national yeah. issue, right? And encouraging jurisdictions to pass the right public policy, to implement the right programs, so that this issue of, like, everyone's going to migrate one place is not an issue anymore. We have massive issues in Vancouver that cannot be fixed at a municipal level. Um, and Or even a provincial level, you think? Or I think about what architects of successful housing first programs have said. Like, for example, in Finland, where they've... I can't remember the percentage, but like they've drastically slashed homelessness and it's supposed to like have even further by like the next five years or something. Hmm. They've, they claim they've effectively ended homelessness. And what they've said it took was uh, coordination and commitment across multiple levels of government and multiple governments from all parties mm -hmm. uh, successively for years. It's it's a system change, uh, and it's entirely possible, I think, but it's a big mm -hmm. change. And so are we, are we going to see people step up to that? When we look at the drug toxicity crisis, is this a solvable challenge? Yes. Just requires political. <laughs> That's what you're saying. I mean, replace, and mostly. It sounds like you're also saying mostly federal. Replacing the contaminated drug supply is not that hard to do practically. Mm -hmm. It's hard to do politically. Are there examples of other jurisdictions that have done it well? Drug drug policy. Yeah. Uh, in Europe, I mean, they've um, God help. I don't have the. Uh, I'm struggling to think of the the dates now, but they've been doing um, pharmaceutical grade heroin as an opioid replacement therapy for decades, hmm. and like crime rates have gone down in certain jurisdictions. And like I, I, uh, I don't have enough to rattle off to you right now. But in Europe, Portugal, everyone can bring Denmark. Denmark is a place. Portugal decriminalized. Uh, they saw massive reductions in overdose deaths. P 
people who are caught with like small quantities of drugs there are steered to a dissuasion commission and they might get a fine or have to do some sort of community service but for the most part they don't like <laughs> so that yeah that's that's the model that's often pointed at so sort of wrapping this up now basically what i've learned from you is that this is very much a problem of political will despite being very complex the solution to keep people alive is quite simple although it does have certain challenges with regard to the capacity of production for safe supply and then when we are looking at a more structural solution with regard to criminal justice and decriminalization or just tackling addiction we require a very focused and committed coalition of you know federal provincial municipal governments working together across governments so when a government loses an election the policy is still carried out yeah is that a fair summary of the issues that we've discussed or is there something else that you think maybe i missed there in, in emphasizing no let's go let's go with it <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm trying to learn from you you're you're the expert here you're, this is your beat no i i think that's a fair that's a fair summary if people want to read more from you follow you get more information on stuff that we've discussed, where should they go? Dance any side. <laughs> uh, people can follow me on Twitter, Andrea Wu, uh, Andy, R-E-A-W-O-O. And uh, on the Globe and Mail website, maybe? Yeah, I'm on there too. Well, you can see all your articles there. Yeah. <laughs> I tweet the good ones. If, if I think like a story was like just okay, like I won't tweet it. <laughs> just follow me for like the good stories. <laughs> if someone actually does want to learn more, where would you direct them? I mean, because we, we covered a very basic, the very basic issues. But if someone wants to get more into the, the details. Are we talking about like Dan side drug policy stuff? Yeah. Opioids, poisoning, policy, what governments have been doing what options there are, just more details in terms of what we've covered in the podcast. Uh, I would say follow me on Twitter, not because I want more followers or because I think I'm amazing, but because I follow a lot of really smart people uh, and I try to amplify the, you know, some of the smartest, uh, best things that I've read. Um, Jen St. Dennis, uh, who is the Thais Downtown Eastside reporter mm -hmm. and a friend of mine, I think she's amazing. It's... Uh, we're so lucky to have a dedicated Danthony side report in her. Um, oh, God, I can't remember her Twitter handle, like, off the top. You can uh, find her, Jen St. Yeah, Dennis. Jen St. Dennis at the Thai. Um No, you put me on the spot. There, there's, there's so many, there's so many, like, Guy Felicella from the BC Center of right, Substance yeah. Use, like, Karen Ward, Drug Policy Advisor for the City of Vancouver. It, um, God. I'll, 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 I'll provide a, a better answer later. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Mark Tyndall as well. He's been on the podcast. He's fucking amazing. Times. He's yeah. great. Andrea, this was. Did you have a name? No, I was gonna make fun of, of Mark. Let's have a dump truck full of hydromorphone <laughs> in the ditch. <laughs> He's great. That's as low barrier as you got. <laughs> He's great. It's like, are you sure you want to say that in this interview, Mark? <laughs> Andrea, this was. Uh, 
very important to me. I'm very humbled that you make the time for me. So thank you very much. Thank you for drinking the beer. How was it? It's pretty good. I got a little bit left. You haven't finished it yet, huh? Have you finished yours? Maybe. You got nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I was too enthralled in our conversation. I do that. I do that. <laughs> no, but thanks so much for, for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm super glad to finally chop it up with you. Me too. People. She's the award-winning journalist for Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail, covering substance use, mental health, drug policy, and broadly other health issues, including COVID-19. She is the always excellent Andrea Wu. And I am Moamir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>